Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Hello, crazy birds. I hope you are all doing well wherever it is that you're listening to today. Today, I am sure a lot of you, if or if you have not experienced it today, I'm sure you will in the next coming days, you will see a lot more heart. You're going to see a lot more love. Very overpriced roses. Of course, it's that time of the year again. It is Valentine's Day. Very, very consumerism-driven day where we all tell each other we love each other because, I mean, let's face it, what is the other 360-odd days uh, for? Obviously, I love Valentine's Day. I love, I just love love, you know? So for me to be able to share that with not just like my husband, but, you know, all the people around is great. But I do feel that we don't need to just celebrate it on Valentine's Day. Celebrate love, you know, show people that you love them all the days of the of the year, not just on one particular day. But if you want to show someone that you love them more on this particular day, There's always so many tips that I can give. And I mean, today we are not focusing just on Valentine's Day. We actually have an amazing guest also on the podcast today. So I'm just going to give you quick hints and also link in the show notes where you can find some of these things. So me, whenever I want to buy gifts for someone, unless I actually know, hey, they are looking for X, Y, and Z, I don't try to purchase things, you know, stuff that they have to put in their house. And I kind of, you know, pass on this responsibility of, you know, they need to find a home for it. They need to take care of it. They need to put it in a dumpster in a few few weeks time, like most of the people, you know. So I try to skip that whole dilemma. And I try to purchase items that's either consumables. I love chocolate and, you know, things that I can actually eat that, you know, has kind of a purpose, you know, not just like crappy stuff that is full of sugars and nasty stuff. I love buying like a really good, nice chocolate that I know this is going to be, you know, someone's going to really like it. Or for me, yes, I do sometimes like a sugary treat. Like you can, honestly, jelly beans is probably my favorite and it's so hard to get package free here in Perth. So things like that, love it, love it, love it, love it. Consumables, always a winner with me. And I mean, so many of the lovely farmers market have so many different jams, you know, pâtés, like you name it. Like it's such a great gift to like gift someone. You could also give experiences. Like I just bought my mom-in-law like a paint and sip voucher and looking forward to actually spending the time with her to actually do this paint and sip thing. So I'm very excited about that. And I mean, time, spending time with people, you know, you don't always have to give someone a gift. You can literally give someone 
like say, hey, you know what, for your birthday, I'm taking you out for lunch or for your birthday, I am having a coffee and cake with you. My treat, you know, things like that. So I have compiled a whole list of things for you guys to go through. So there is my eco-friendly gift guide, which I'm going to link in the show notes that will really just like kind of, you know, take you through. If you want more like Valentine's Day specific things, there was an episode that I did previously, episode 58, which I'll also link of how to be a more sustainable Valentine. So have a look at that if there's some more info that you want. I've also done like a sustainable Holly, uh, Hollywood holiday gift ideas for you guys as well. So I'm I'm quite excited for that. I also did with a, like a Christmas stocking fillers, which basically had gifts under a variety, like from $10, what you can get, like what you can get under $20 and just kind of went up to, I think about 50 or $30. So you can definitely have a look there to get some more inspiration. If you're still running low on ideas, I'm going to question whether you read all of this or went through it, but let me know and I'll be happy to help. But yeah, sometimes we just need to take a moment to just like think, what would that person really like and appreciate and go for that? Well, guys, a new episode. I am really, really excited. Everyone knows I love my little fur baby, Piper, who's not snoring now. So that's great. But today's guest is a lovely, lovely uh, certified dog behaviorist consultant. And she's also also the founder of the Canine Conservationist and extremely dedicated to effective human and dog training methods. So during this episode, we talked about how these canines are doing their part for the environment when it comes to conservation, what type of training they go through, as well as look at quite a few, but one particular project I like to mention is a project that they worked on uh, with cheetahs in Kenya and how these dogs are actually helping with the conservation of these cheetahs. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Kayla Fratt. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're most welcome. Kayla, how did your sustainable journey actually start? It started so early that I don't truly remember the start of it. My parents, you know, they met on a trail building crew in Colorado in the very early 90s. And my dad was works for the Forest Service. My mom was a freelance writer, but was always kind of a, a crunchy granola sort of sort of person. So I had a lot of it just permeated into my my childhood. But then personally, I really woke up to it. I had the opportunity when I was a sophomore, well, when I was a sophomore in high school, a boarding school nearby transitioned from a four-year school to a semester school. And a semester school is basically what it sounds like. It's a boarding school that you go to for just a semester. And that school was focused on environmental education, inspiring environmental stewardship, It transitioned to a semester school, which my parents were open to sending me to and could afford to send me to right when I was the right age for it. So it was $500 for the semester, which sounds absolutely crazy for 2010. And I spent a semester at this amazing boarding school on 1400 acres in northern Wisconsin. It butts right up to the Sylvania wilderness area. And like our 
our English class there was uh, called Wilderness Voices. And we read essays by John Muir and we read Into the Wild. And then our history class was all about Lewis and Clark and wilderness exploration. And just everything was focused on the context of the environment and the world around us. And that just really turned me into a a flaming little eco warrior at like 16 years old. And I just haven't stopped since. Oh, wow. I love that. And I mean, I just wish there was more places where we from a young age can actually immerse ourselves in like nature and just be one and like learn more. So I think that's such a such a great like head start that you have. And obviously canines, you know, like anyone that has probably listened to this podcast know that I've got a very spoiled pooch, a French bulldog that's named Piper. And yeah, so I'm very always keen in anything animals, anything dogs. So yeah, really excited to talk to you about that. How did your love for like canines actually started? Like the conservation and also like, if you can tell us a little bit more about why dogs? Yeah, no, and just to echo, I mean, I was just so fortunate. And it's actually, it's really tragic. That school, conserve school, actually shut down about two years ago now. So it was a very short-lived thing. I guess it wasn't very financially sustainable, despite being environmentally sustainable. So I'm hoping that we get to see more of those things in our lifetime again. But yeah, circling back to dogs, my parents bought 40 acres of land in northern Wisconsin. Basically, throughout my entire childhood, we're rewilding it. So I grew up like... We would transplant trees from stands that were too thick over to areas that had been logged. And, you know, some of those trees are now like 40 feet tall. I had that. And but then the flip side of that was we lived about a half hour away from where any of my friends lived. And that's on a highway that's, you know, in the middle of nowhere. There's no buses. That's that's not 30 minutes because of traffic. That's 30 minutes of driving uh, 60 miles an hour on the highway. And I'm sorry, I keep using miles and feet and everything. Um, but that meant that I I did kind of grow up a lonely kid. I was really extroverted and really wanted to be engaged with the world. And the way that I filled that void was both through playing with, you know, bugs that I found in the dirt and by being really, really interested in pets and animals. And I always was really interested or dreamed of being someone like Jane Goodall, who was a conservationist, was an ecologist, but also had this really intimate relationship with my study animals and really got to know them and got to know their personalities. I was always very interested in animal behavior. And as I got closer and closer to college and started going through college, um, I did major in ecology, but I started realizing, oh gosh, the way ecology is done nowadays just isn't generally that. It's a lot of modeling. It's a lot of camera trapping. It's a lot of GPS collars. It's a lot of this non-invasive sampling, which I totally ethically stand behind, but it does make some of the behavioral data that I'm personally really interested in as far as understanding how animals understand their world and engage with their world a little bit challenging and also just emotionally for me. It didn't fulfill what I really wanted out of my job. So while I was in college, I also started, um, I started training dogs for money because, um, you know, the U.S. education system is massively overexpensive and I needed something to help cover the costs of books and everything. I really fell in love with dog training, but never viewed it as a real career path for myself. You know, again, despite growing up with animals and always having been a bit of an animal nerd, I was really focused on ecology and conservation. I didn't want to train dogs. I had considered being a dolphin trainer and I didn't want to do that. It didn't have that same mission for me. 
So fast forward a couple years, a friend who knew that I was both an ecology major and made money by training dogs sent me a YouTube video about dogs that were trained to sniff out orca poop in the Salish Sea up in um, kind of British Columbia, Washington state area. And I just was immediately hooked. I was like, oh my God, I can, I can do both. I can have this intimate relationship with an animal that I love and I can get to know that animal really well. And I can do non-invasive sampling and stay within modern conservation biology ethics. And I can work on these really interesting ecological questions and conservation issues that I care so much about. So that was about 2015, 2016. And it took me four years, three years from that point in order to actually get enough experience to get myself hired within the field of conservation dogs. Basically, the second I watched that YouTube video, sent out a bunch of emails uh, to everyone I could find on the internet being like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. How do I get an internship? How do I volunteer? How do I get involved? Do you have courses? And most of those emails went unanswered. A couple places kind of politely responded saying, sorry, we don't offer internships or we don't take volunteers right now. Like, you know, thanks for your interest, but bye. You know, which is totally fine. <laughs> and then I actually had a couple organizations reach out and tell me, uh, we actually don't hire dog trainers. We don't really like having to, to retrain them. And we want to train people from the ground up. So you actually have too much of the wrong sort of experience. Goodbye. Which was pretty discouraging here as like a 21-year-old. Because it's one thing if someone tells me I don't have enough experience, then I can go out and do that. But to be told I already had too much of the wrong sort of experience and that it couldn't be undone it was pretty devastating. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a very tough field to get into. And that's something I'm really passionate about in this field as well is trying to remedy that. But yeah, so then I spent the next three years, basically, I worked in conservation advocacy, I worked at an animal shelter working with behaviorally challenging dogs, I worked as a freelance writer and a website builder and just got all of these skills kind of pushed together to the point where then um, working dogs for conservation hired me as their communications and outreach coordinator, I actually was not supposed to be training and handling the dogs when I was hired there. They hired me because I knew how to build websites. I knew how to write, but also knew enough about the dogs and enough about the conservation that I would be a little bit more of an asset than someone who maybe had similar skills, but just knew the writing coding side of things. And then I was with them for about a year and a half. Halfway through that time, I managed to uh, lobby myself into the position of canine field specialist. So I did end up getting to actually do field work and go out into the field um, with my dog Barley, as well as a couple other dogs that I handled there. And then I lost that job in November of 2020. Now I run my own business. So that is a very long-winded answer. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I so that's, that's kind question. of the birth of canine conservation. So it's obviously your own company that you started. So what exactly do you do? So yeah, conservation detection dogs are dogs that are specifically trained to sniff out things that are hard to find for scientists, researchers, agencies, NGOs. So what that generally looks like is that these dogs are finding poop, or it can be plants, mollusks, nests, it can even be toxins, or in some cases, even tracking individual animals. So there's a lot of different variety within that. But basically, our job is if a researcher comes to us and says, hey, I'm having a really hard time finding X for my research, we step in and try to figure out how the dogs can help. So that can be anything from finding the carcasses of bats that have been killed on wind farms to, you know, again, the scat of an endangered animal, which then can be used for 
hormone analysis or diet analysis or anything within that realm. So how do you then go about actually training these dogs to do this conservation work? So first it starts with um, finding a a dog who wants the job. So what most of us within this industry do, and myself included, is we look for dogs that are absolutely bonkers for playing fetch. So sort of dogs where you hold up a ball and their pupils turn into dinner plates and either they're barking, spinning, jumping, bark, you know, jumping up on you. Or in the case of, I generally work with border collies, they're herding dogs. They tend to freeze and crouch and it's like, they're not even breathing. So not just a dog that like kind of sort of wants to play and kind of sort of likes it, but a dog that is like, oh my God, I would die for that ball. So that's what we're looking for because what we're basically using that ball for is, Hey, if you find this, I'm going to give you your ball. And that has to be worth it to them, particularly when we're asking them to work around sensitive species, prey animals, you know, in the presence of other dogs, motorbikes, you know, whatever it is, the dogs need to be focused enough on their reward that it is worth it to them to ignore some pretty tempting things in exchange for that ball. And then what the training actually looks like is, this is going to sound too simple, and it, it, it is, it's, it's an oversimplification, but basically, I take my my sample jar, whether that's got dehydrated plants in it or freeze-dried scat or, you know, a carcass of an animal. I let the dog sniff it and I give them their ball. They sniff it, they get their ball. They sniff it, they get their ball. We're basically creating uh, like, you know, Pavlov's dogs where, you know, they drool when they hear the bell. We want our dogs to get excited about their ball when they smell this odor. And then we start hiding it. Um, Generally, you know, we'll start with some like hiding it in your bathroom, you know, something really tiny and really small. And then we expand their search area until they're capable of searching for kilometers and kilometers or hours and hours in a relevant environment for, um, for whatever that target species is going to be. Oh, wow. That sounds quite fascinating. And it's not like the dogs that you use. A lot of the times people would think it's some sort of, you know, purebred breeder special thing. But a lot of the dogs that you guys actually use are from rescues. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So there's definitely a benefit to getting a dog from like a purpose bred breeder. We've got on staff, we have four dogs. And one of our four dogs is from a breeder. So there's definitely a benefit to that. And um, we're totally pro-responsible breeding within our group as well. But what we also find is that the sort of dogs that want this sort of job, that have the energy and have the drive for this sort of job, don't tend to make great pets. They tend to run a people ragged because these are the sort of dogs that, you know, you take them for a one-hour run, they sleep for 20 minutes, and they're back at it, you know, at 100%. And that can lead to all sorts of issues for both the people and the dogs. Um, So three of our four staff dogs are from shelters. They were relinquished for various reasons, but broadly related to, you know, having energy levels that were not manageable for kind of your average home and your average person who just wants a pet that can, you know, go for a couple walks around the block. One of the things that is challenging with shelter dogs for us is we're generally, we have to be very picky. So there's a lot of shelter dogs that could do this work or maybe want to do this work, but maybe have bad hips or they're already seven years old and we're not going to be able to adopt them and put in the time needed for a dog that, you know, even honestly our cutoff is around three years old. Um, So we're looking for, for young, healthy dogs because it's so much work to get them up and running. And those later years are, you know, quite honestly, and this sounds, this sounds cold for me to say, but 
their later years are their more expensive years. So as an organization, we don't want to be constantly bringing on six, seven-year-old dogs that are going to then overload us with veterinary costs as they <laughs> age out of the job. And then we end up needing, you know, house all of these retired dogs as well, because we don't, we, you know, when a dog retires, we're not just going to return it to the shelter or yeah. rehome it. The dog stays with us. So um, it definitely, anyway, the, I'm getting a, lo- a little long-winded here, but basically there are plenty of dogs who would love this job, but maybe for whatever reason in the shelter environment just aren't a good fit for us. And, you know, some dogs also may have a behavior issue that is challenging for us. We all have multiple dogs, so we can't take on a shelter dog that has aggression issues or anything like that. And does the dogs need to kind of wear like special apparel, like, you know, shoes or glasses or any different things for the different areas if they actually go and work in in those areas? Yeah, it depends a little bit on the specific area that we're working in. But all of our dogs are trained to wear both goggles and boots. We'll wear those kind of throughout um, various projects, depending on the need. They also generally are wearing a harness that is weight-bearing. So it's a, a kind of a specially constructed harness from the American company Roughwear that allows us to lift the dogs comfortably if needed to get them up and over something. Or if the dog were to be injured, we can kind of hoist them a little bit with that. Although we actually also have a special harness that we carry in our emergency packs that allows us to carry a dog out if something more severe were to happen to the dog in the field. Sounds interesting. Like, yeah, I would love to know how you get your dogs to wear shoes because I've been trying to do it with mine and she's just like, no, not having that. This is like a punishment for me. I don't want to wear it at all. (laughs) But yeah, we'll try. We'll get there. And can you tell us more about like kind of the process of the dogs kind of sniffing out when you guys are in in areas where they need to like sniff out, for example, invasive plant removals? Is it just that like what you've previously explained, do they smell it and then go and smell it in the field or like what would be the process when you take the dogs out? So when we take the dogs out, the dogs um, generally leading up to any new project or any project that we're returning to, if it's a project that we do kind of, you know, every, every summer or something like that, we brush the dogs up on that target species or group of target species again. So it's kind of top of mind for them. But in theory, anything that they're trained for, they will then continue to find in the field. So it's not that I say bats and then the dogs go out and find bats and are going to ignore the scat of something else they're trained on. I just say search. And that means, hey, go find anything that you've been rewarded for finding in the past. And then it's kind of my job to both think strategically about, do we actually want this dog to be trained on these two species that maybe overlap a lot in habitat? Or is that potentially going to be disadvantageous and we want to have two separate dogs for those two projects? Particularly that comes up if one species is a lot more common than the other. And therefore, so for an example here in the US, it would be coyotes, which are super duper ubiquitous. Uh, And you guys in Australia might be like, you know, invasive foxes or invasive rabbits or something like that. You wouldn't necessarily want the same dog doing that as also looking for some endangered tiny marsupial in the same habitat because the dog is just going to keep finding fox scat exactly. over and over and over. And like, might that's be just a long day. Exactly. It's just going to slow you down and tire the dog out. So you might not want the dog to be doing that. You might want two separate dogs, one for invasives and one for endangered. Sometimes it can actually work the other way though, where like you can actually use finding the fox scat as a way to keep the dog motivated to go find a marsupial. If they're only going to find one marsupial 
if they're only going to find one per week, then you might want to have them trained on other things as well to kind of keep their motivation up. So there's a, there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. And then the other thing when you're thinking about a dog that's trained on multiple species is you want to ensure that as the handler, you're able to identify those species appropriately. So for example, if the dog were to be trained on both fox and some sort of spotted qual or something, you as the handler should be able to tell the difference between those two scats so that if you're out there doing qual surveys, you're not picking up red fox scat and wasting a bunch of time and energy and even potentially money as far as getting those scats analyzed by a laboratory. I'm sorry, I don't think I fully answered your question though as far as what it actually looks like. So basically what we do is we get out to our search area, we'll have a defined area, whether that's kind of like a square on a map on my GPS or more of like a route or a trail where it's like, all right, you're going to walk Forest Road 136 for two miles and then come back. I have my big old backpack on with all my field gear, all my safety stuff. We've already done our site safety assessment. We know that the dogs are going to be as safe as possible while we're out there and we're going to be as safe as possible while we're out there. We tell the dog to search and then generally the dogs are off leash and the dogs then they put their nose down and they start running. And what they're doing is actually air scenting. So they're not tracking a specific animal, but they're actually, they're, they're picking up odor molecules that are moving on air currents. And once they catch an odor molecule that they recognize, then they'll kind of follow that almost as if, you know, you imagine your neighbors are having a barbecue and you try to figure out which house has the barbecue by just by following that that smell that's basically what they're doing oh wow that sounds so interesting and there was also another like cool project that you guys were involved with with a cheetah research program in kenya can you tell us a bit more about that yeah so about this time last year so we're talking in um january in january of 2022 I got a message on Facebook from someone asking if I had any interest in going to Kenya to work on a cheetah project with some scat dogs. And I figured that it was worth the conversation. I was absolutely thrilled, but also was like, this seems like a very weird way to get asked to do this. Um, And it turns out it was actually the niece of the executive director who knew they were looking for people and had gotten my name from someone who had been on my podcast in the past. So long story short, I ended up spending seven weeks in Kenya. My two co-founders of canine conservationists, Rachel and Heather, also spent about a month in Kenya. So we ended up giving them about three months total of support. And the reason that they were asking for help is Action for Cheetahs in Kenya is a really small nonprofit out of Kenya. And they have two scat detection dogs. Their team and their program has been running for close to a decade now. But due to COVID and some other kind of unforeseen circumstances, they ended up having 100% turnover on their scat dog team. So they had these two exquisitely trained dogs and nobody left who knew how to handle them, who knew how to train them, who knew how to work with them. So they had just hired two brand new trainers. They were like 23 and 24 years old. Their names are Edwin and Naomi. They're both awesome, awesome people, really dedicated, kind, smart people. But you know, Edwin had a degree in agriculture management and Naomi was a conservation biologist. So neither one of them really knew what they were doing with the dogs. So our job was to kind of come in and do everything. You know, it was like, okay, do you know how to train a dog? Do you know how to trim its toenails? Do you know how to read a GPS? Do you know, do you understand how odor is going to move in a given environment? Do you know how to keep your dog safe? Do you know how to read their body language? You know, there's so much that goes into this job. We were just doing the best we could to get get these these two young handlers up and running and able to... Um, their big goal is to do the National Cheetah Survey. So starting, I believe, this year, 
their goal is to do surveys in pretty much every single county of the entire country of Kenya um, to try to figure out exactly how many cheetahs there are and what they're doing and who's related to whom and who's dispersed where and who's disappeared since their last survey. Oh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's an absolutely massive undertaking. I mean, I can't even describe to you how many translators are involved to deal with these tribal languages because they're also doing community engagement and interviews along the way to speak with local herders about, hey, do you think there's a cheetah in this area? And then comparing that to what the dogs are finding and what other people are finding. So it's a massive, massive undertaking. I don't know nearly as much about it as, you know, obviously their team does, but that was kind of the big goal was to get the dogs and the handlers up and running and ready to go for this big national cheetah survey. Oh, that's amazing. It's really great, you know, how obviously dogs are involved in this. And, you know, I mean, in the last couple of years, I've just like experienced like what type of kind of services they can actually offer as well. And, you know, how important the correct training for them is. So it's really great that, you know, they are definitely doing their part also for the environment and, you know, ticking so many of those boxes. But like, what do you guys do, Kayla, with like the data collection that that you receive? Like, I mean, there's so many different projects that you, you've got. But yeah, what type of data would you say you kind of collect? Yeah, so it, it basically varies based on what our client or project partner needs. Um, so generally, the way this field works right now is conservation dog handlers like myself work as subcontractors. We're hired by biologists who have a question. A lot of times they've already tried other, other methods and that's why they're coming to dogs. And they're like, oh my God, camera traps aren't working, hair traps aren't working, blah, blah, blah. I guess maybe we'll try the crazy dog people. It seems to be the attitude we get a, a lot. <laughs> And then again, it varies. So in some cases, they may really want us to have information on vegetation cover and substrate or something if they're trying to figure out where a specific species is moving. In the case of the wind farm work, they're really interested in the distance from the turbine and bearing from the turbine to determine you know, where, if there's a directionality or distance at which these bats are really struggling to avoid the turbines. Basically, I, I have different data sheets and different data entry for each project. And that's just based on their goals and their needs. Okay, that sounds very, very interesting. And Kayla, what would you have say, what has been one of your most important decisions that you have made around Mama Earth? I think the biggest decision that I've made as far as, you know, helping Mama Earth, being involved with Mama Earth is to pursue my own passions openly and without judgment from myself. Whether that's, you know, I'm going to spend three months really learning how to drive manual. That sounds really fun. I'm going to dedicate myself to rock climbing for a while. And those things have ultimately ended up turning into careers and positions that have helped me help Mama Earth more and more. There are so many things, particularly when you're looking at fields like ecology and conservation where, you know, as I mentioned, I got that first conservation dog job because I knew how to code. So I think being really open to a wide variety of experiences and letting yourself pursue your passions, even if they don't seem directly related, if you're passionate and if you're open to it, you will be able to come back and use those skills for Mama Earth going forward. 
I love that. That's so important. And Kayla, just like for any of our crazy birds in particular, someone that owns a very stubborn French bulldog, do you have any training advice for us to help our our little uh, fur babies to thrive? First thing first, buy Kim Brophy's book, Meet Your Dog. It's going to change the way you look at your dog, you understand their behavior. It's written by an applied ethologist. So it's all about how different purpose-bred dogs and different dog breeds interact differently with the world. And I think one of the biggest things that as dog people we can use help with is truly understanding why our dogs do what they do, what they're doing, how do we meet those needs? And if we can start from that place, then everything else is easier. So often I get clients coming to me saying, oh my gosh, my dog is doing this. My dog is doing that. How do I get them to stop? And I say, well, you know, you've got, you've got a high energy hurting breed here. So he's chasing lights because he has unfulfilled needs to control movement. So how do we give him an outlet that's more appropriate for that and meet his needs and help improve his life? And then we can talk about meeting your needs as far as, you know, reducing his his shadow chasing, light chasing or whatever it is. So I think so often we get into this controlling, programmatic, we want to be able to just teach our dogs to do something and then set it and forget it. And that's just not how it works. So really understanding where your dog comes from. Oh, that's, I could talk about that for that, well, 18 hours. <laughs> yeah, that, that's amazing because, yeah, we've been we've been going through phases and we, we're currently in a pause of like a skateboard learning phase at the moment and like getting teach, like talking buttons. We're doing talking buttons at the moment. So trying a whole oh, variety cool. of different things at the moment. But, yeah, our dog is recovering from her sixth surgery at the moment. So... <laughs> So yeah, we, we're just taking it easy for time being at the moment. But is there anything else that you felt we've missed out? I think I need to introduce you to my two working dogs because they're really what makes makes my world go round. So we have Barley, who's a nine-year-old Border Collie. He's recovering from knee surgery at this point, but we expect and his rehab vet expects him to be able to return to work in a couple weeks here. Um, it's been about three months since his surgery and have several more years in his career. He's my absolute best friend. He and I got hired at Working Dogs for Conservation together. And now he helps run uh, Canine Conservationists. He's our, he's our main working dog. And then my other, um, my other personal working dog is Niffler. And he's our, our purpose-bred little Border Collie. Um, I got him from a breeder in Idaho. And he's just the sweetest, smartest little thing. He's only two years old, so he's still learning the ropes. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to these two lovely, lovely members of your team. We are going to move into our final fives. What is one social media account or publication that you follow? Actually, my current obsession, my current favorite is Engineers Who Van Life, which is not Mama Earth related, but it's a good friend of mine and his fiance. And they do all sorts of really cool van life stuff and are very practical and helpful as far as maintenance and construction. Oh, that sounds amazing. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? <laughs> I've got a lot. I think the the biggest one that I would like to see in my lifetime, and this is not one that I'm actively working for personally, would be to actually see some political will and political movement on um, both climate change and the biodiversity crisis. I know there's a lot of people who care a lot, but there is not a sufficient political worldwide will to deal with anything. And what advice can you give our crazy bits this week to help out Mama Earth? 
the big thing I've been thinking about a lot lately has been focusing on what you can control and then doing your best to let go of the rest. So this is almost more of a self-care thing. You know, focusing on what you can do for Mama Earth that is under your control, that suits your passions, that suits your skill set. And then trying to take care of yourself and let go of the rest in a way that feels good to you. Oh, awesome. Love that. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? It's not so much a fact, but it's a thing I like to question, which is whether or not we have more right to the earth, to its resources, to the planet than any other species out there. And that's something that I really like to question people and push people on. It's again, it's not a fact, but it's a moral or ethical stance that I I know I have very strong feelings about. And I think a lot of the discourse is super human centric in a way that um personally rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> that's so important. And where can people actually find you? Yeah, so I'm all over the internet. So the the two main places to find me are under Canine Conservationists, which you can find on most social medias or on our website, canineconservationists.org. And then personally, you can also find me under Collies Without Borders and Journey Dog Training. So Journey Dog Training is a dog behavior website. And then on YouTube and Instagram, um, my life travels and everything with the dogs is under Collies Without Borders. Oh, awesome. Love that. Thank you for taking the time to actually share share with us what it is that you guys do. I really appreciate it. And yeah, just keep on, keep on doing all the amazing work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're, um, we're off to the, the rainforests of Guatemala here in a couple of weeks to do some very exciting work. So oh, wow. really can't complain. <laughs> That's so cool. So how does it work traveling with the dogs always? Yeah, so I'm currently in the midst of driving the Pan American Highway. The dogs and I live out of a van. And when I'm not doing field work, I work remotely. So I'm kind of taking a sabbatical before I go back and hopefully start my PhD in 2024. So right now, I'm just crossing land borders, um, which I suppose in Australia, that's not much of a thing you guys get to do. Yeah, Um, yeah, I live in a van. And um, most of these Central American countries, you know, they're they're the size of states. They're very, very tiny. So um, Honduras, you can drive across and up in about two hours if you really want to. It's a lot of very long border days, a lot of paperwork, but um, it's actually not too challenging given that I live out of a car. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and looking forward to following your journey. Yes. Thank you so much. This was lovely. I had a blast. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guest for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, Maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them? Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms 
and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday, so make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice, and it's us crazy birds.